0: Off they go. We can turn over in your Bibles to John John chapter 3. We're making our way through John chapter 3. We'll be in here for quite a while. But I just wanted to start off this morning knowing that uh, as we're in this very important text of Scripture about being born again, being born from above, having regeneration, being saved, however you want to put it. uh, This is probably one of the most important texts that we will read in Scripture ever. And we, we know that as John, the purpose of this book is to really uh, apologetically show that Christ is the Messiah, that he is truly God. And he says so much, John, at the conclusion of the gospel in chapter chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, but these things are written so that you may believe in Jesus and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so it's very important that we realize the purpose of John writing this book is so that we can have life in his name, so that we can be saved, so that we can know that our sins are forgiven. And we started this text uh, last week in verses uh, 1 through, through, well, we read more than that, but today we're just going to read verses 1 through 9, or 1 through 10, excuse me. And so I would ask if you stand in honor of God's word as we read chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. John writes there, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, or Rabbi, however you want to pronounce it, Rabbi in the Greek, Rabbi in our English language, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is of spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Would you join me in a short word of prayer? Father, we come to this text of Scripture. And Lord, that, that question to Nicodemus, from Jesus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So many times we miss spiritual truths that you have laid out for us very clearly. And Lord, it takes the enablement of your spirit. We can't figure these things out on our own. We, we are totally, completely, utterly dependent upon you. And so Lord, we pray today that you would help us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now remember, everything in this gospel is going toward proving who Christ is. The most important question that you could ever answer or ask anyone. Who is Jesus Christ? And we, we talked about this last week, about religion, and how this cannot uh, save you. Religion is something that man made. Man came up with religion. God never came up with religion. Man did. And it's man's feeble attempt to reach out to a holy God. And you think about the world religions, none of them can save you. Only God can save you. And so religion can't save you because to enter the kingdom, God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, you need a new birth by the Holy Spirit. You need to be born from above. You need to be saved. You need to be transformed. You can't go the way you are naturally in this world and enter heaven. It's impossible. And so this story of Nicodemus with Jesus talking, now remember, this is just a segment of the conversation they had. This is kind of like the highlights. This is what God wanted John to put in his word. I'm sure that this conversation lasted more than the five or six minutes it took us to read this passage. Okay, they probably hung out for hours discussing these things. Remember, he was the teacher of the Jews. But the main point here is this, this birth, and we mentioned this last week, is something that happens uh, to us. It doesn't happen uh, by us. I don't know if you remember, but back probably in the 80s, Billy Graham put out a book called How, How to Be Born Again. You ever read that book you ever see that book it 's pretty okay. I mean, it presents the gospel about sin it talks about repentance. Just turn this one off and turn yeah off i don 't know what's going on with this mic um And so it talks about repentance, it talks about a bunch of of different things, but just the title itself, How to Be Born Again, what does that make it sound like? Something you do. Do Um, do you, when you go to Barnes and Nobles, do you ever look in the the birth section? You know, the mothers, new mothers expecting, whatever. Um, Do they have a section where a book that says How to Be Born? Three steps to How to Be Born. You're not going to find that book. Why? Because you don't have a part in your own birth, right? It's not something you can do. None of us have had any part in our birth. And so spiritual birth or regeneration or new creation, whatever you want to use, is solely the work of God. It's it's really the the whole work of God. It's the first work, um, you could say the second work, in our salvation. The first work, obviously, is our election. But holy, it's a sovereign work of God. And we talked about a little bit about this last week. And we mentioned that here in these verses, verses 1 through 3, Jesus and John and Nicodemus, basically, they're, they're discussing the need for spiritual birth. Why do we need to be born again? Why is that such an important thing? And we began our discussion last week with the approach of Nicodemus. And we saw that, you know, this is a very familiar story for many of us. We've heard this before. We've heard it in Sunday school. We know who Nicodemus is. His, word, his name basically means victory over the people. Nick, Nick, uh, Nike, you could say, means victory, okay, victorious. And it's a Gentile game, name, even though he was Jewish. It was a very elevated name. But we first looked at his religious persuasion there in verse 1. And John was very careful to point out that there was this man of the Pharisees. And we talked about the Pharisees. And Jesus had a lot to say about the Pharisees. And I'm not going to reread what we read last week in the Gospel of Matthew about the Pharisees and other Gospels. But Jesus didn't have a lot of good things to say about these folks. They were the religious elite of Jesus' day. That's who they were. And so the Pharisees grew up uh, in religion. They, just, they were surrounded by it. And they were a very strong religious organization during Jesus' time. The word itself, as we mentioned, means separated. It means you're separated from the common people. If you're a Pharisee, you're not common at all. And uh, they observed 600-plus rules, laws of the Torah, some included some commands from scripture, but most of them were ritualistic ceremonial rules that they came up with on their own. And they said, you have to follow these to the T. They, weren't, they had no grace. But they were mostly middle-class businessmen, leaders of the synagogues. They believed basically in the tenets that we believe. They believed that God controlled all things, that there's a resurrection from the dead, that there's an afterlife, that the Messiah will set up his kingdom on earth. That they believed in the existence of angels and demonic beings, all those things. But a lot of these Pharisees were at odds with the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they had you know some disagreements on doctrine. But what's interesting when they, the one point where they came together was what they came against the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they said, let's just disagree. Let's agree to disagree. We're not going to get into all the the little itty-bitty things that we believe in because we have a greater task here. We have to take down this man who is usurping our authority as a religious elite. And that's one thing about religion. They want authority. They want prominence. Think about it. I mean, in the church I grew up, you know, the, the person that was in charge, the priest, we called him, he stood out. He wore different clothes. He had a collar. Even when he was in his basic black getup, he had a collar around his neck. Why? To designate him as different. I'm not like you. (laughs) I'm different. That's why they stand on an altar. And they lift themselves up. And all world religions have someone of that sort. They a guru or whatever you might call them. They look to that person and they really put them above anything else. Side note: What's what's happened, unfortunately, in the Christian church, even in the Protestant church, is we have really grown into a culture in our churches today. Uh, I call it pastor celebrity worship. <laughs> Where people end up worshiping individuals, and they have such a great following, you can't really argue with it. People, "Wow, you know this, this person is wonderful." And everybody's shocked when, when someone of that stature, because they've elevated them, they put them up, does something wrong. They sin in some way, and then all of a sudden, great is the fall thereof, right? Because everybody's lifted that person up beyond what they are supposed to be lifted up. And I don't think those individuals want to be lifted up, by the way. I think it's more people that follow them. They're not, most of them are not out there seeking, you know, uh, self-adulation amongst the people, all that stuff. They're not, they're not into all that, but it just naturally happens. Because it's easier to follow a man than it is God who you can't see, and we see this happening over and over again. And you have to be careful. You have to be careful. You know, you're, you're not here to follow the leaders or the elders or the pastor. You're here because the Lord commands you to be here, I pray irrespective of who the pastor is, who the elder is, who is teaching, whatever. You're here because you desire to be here, because you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, and Christ says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So you choose to come out, and you choose to worship your God in a way that is honoring to him. But we have a tendency to put people way up high, you know, and... Another thing, I, I just want to say this because it's, it's very important, I think, that we understand. Uh, just recently, um, we had a, a pastor very well known, Alistair Begg. He made one comment in an interview, which I believe was poor advice. He told a grandmother that she should go to her granddaughter's um, homosexual wedding or whatever it was rather than not go and potentially cut ties with them in any way. And he made this comment on an interview with people and obviously it was aired and when he was confronted with well, I don't we don't think that's a biblical counsel. I, you know, I don't believe any born again Christian should ever attend a wedding of two people who are homosexual. Because the wedding is what? It's a ceremony. It's a celebration. Even if you disagree with it. And he was very careful. He parsed his words very carefully. I made sure the grandmother was very clear that she disagreed with everything. And he was very careful about that. And he does not support that kind of marriage. He does not support homosexual marriage. He has a very good track record on that. But I was just surprised when he made this one comment and then people dug down on it and he for whatever reason, didn't change his mind. said, well, maybe I gave some of that advice. He didn't really have anything to say about it other than I'm going to stick by my guns. Uh, people were surprised at that. Radios took Radio stations took him off the air for that. Now, this is a man who's faithfully taught the word of God for many, many years. And, and my point is simply this. We put these individuals up at a level that they're not asking to be put up. Mostly. The good Bible sound teachers are not asking for people, oh, it's all about people following them. That's not true. They're faithfully trying to do what God wants them to do, but people gravitate to them, they lift them up, they exalt them, and then when something goes wrong, even one little misadvice, their whole career's trashed. See, I, I think we have to be careful with that. I disagree with his counsel. I'd be very clear about that, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that he's a poor Bible teacher as a result of that. So we have to be gracious, right? We have to be understanding, and I think sometimes the church just wants to pile on. And, you know, we we have to be very, very careful of that. Because that really smacks of religion in and of itself, does it not? You know, how many of us have done something or gave bad advice? But because we're not out there on the radio every week or every day or whatever, you know, we don't get slammed. Uh, we, we just have to be understanding in these things. And so we need to pray for Pastor Begg. I would say that. I pray for him and his family. I mean, I can't imagine going through what he's going through. Um. A lot of people are calling on him to repent. I don't, I don't necessarily understand where that's coming from because I don't think that he sinned. I think he gave poor advice. But as a pastor, you're held to a different level, and he understands that, so he's got to figure all that out. But we need to pray for him in the meantime. But see, many of these Pharisees put their religion over any relationship with God. They really weren't concerned with a relationship with God. They were concerned more with, you know, counting all the rules that they kept and, and this and that and everything else. And so the truth is there, you know, basically by the grace of God, there go I. We could all do something or say something that's not in a line with Scripture one day. And so we have to be careful of that. And I said last week, your reputation is only what people think you are, but your character is what God knows you to be. We need to be reminded of that over and over again. And so we looked at this, this religious persuasion of Nicodemus that he was a Pharisee, and we saw how Jesus called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and very derogatory terms, really, he used of the Pharisees of his day. But here is is Nicodemus coming, and I think that he's coming to Jesus because he has a question in his heart. Something's bothering this man. Something is, is, is going on inside of him. Now, we can't say that he is a believer. He's not. He's a Pharisee. We went over that last week. Uh, But somehow, he's drawn to Christ. And what I'm saying is really, whether it's out of curiosity or whether it's actually God drawing him, he comes to Jesus, and he is of this Pharisaical uh, background. And, And just to give you an idea, for a Pharisee to come to Christ is unheard of. In the scripture, basically we have two. He's one of them, where he came to Jesus for advice. And who was the other one? Paul, right? Paul was a Pharisee. And when Paul came, remember what he said in in, uh, uh, Philippians. He said, all my pharisaical background, everything that I've achieved, because it is an achievement. I mean, it, it, to be a Pharisee, you're, you're at the top of your game in the religious world. And so Paul says, you know, I looked at all that, and guess what? I count it as dung. I, I count it as feces, basically, is what he's saying. It's not even, it's not even worth it. That, that's really, really amazing to me. And so here is this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And his, his religion basically brings some curiosity up in his mind. And you see it here played out because uh, he, he says, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews. So this was not just any Pharisee. This was the ruler of the Jews. This was the guy that was at the top of that organization. Now, verse 2 tells us here clearly that he is, is a, uh, he came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night. So we, we saw his religious background. We also need to just look briefly at his political position, this ruler of the Jews. What does that mean? He was part of the, the Sanhedrin, okay, and the, the Bible says in verse 1 that he was a ruler. Who were the Sanhedrin? Remember, the, the, the ruler of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, was, we could call it a puppet government of Rome. That's really what it was. It was a puppet government of Rome. It was designed by Rome to keep all the Jews uh, underhand. The, the term Sanhedrin is from the Greek word, which means assembly or council, and it dates back all the way to the Hellenistic period. But the concept is one that goes back to the Bible. In, in the Torah, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, here's what Moses, what God commands Moses. He says, bring me 70 of the Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. This is where we get this from. Deuteronomy sixteen eighteen tells us, "You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment." So the concept is biblical. The land, you know, of Israel was divided up amongst the the, the, the tribes. In those those areas where the tribes had their presence, there were towns, there were villages. In every town, in every village, uh, there was to be a court. If they had 120 men as heads of family in that village, they had a local court there. And they called the local court a Sanhedrin. In the smaller towns where there wasn't 120 men, uh, there were either three judges if the town was very, very small, or seven judges who sat as a court, uh, both to judge and jury in all these legal matters that they would have in that small village. And this is where the biblical concept of the, the Sanhedrin really comes from. Now, some of these were Orthodox Jews who uh, were part of the Sanhedrin, and, and <clears throat> they didn't really agree with some of the, <laughs> the hypocritical Jews and Pharisees that were on this court. And they basically started a, their own council. And they called the council the Boulame. Boulame. <clears throat> and they were in opposition to the sort of, of they were kind of a hidden group amongst the, the Sanhedrin, you could say, in opposition to the Sanhedrin. And they because the Sanhedrin, what were they doing? They were ripping off the people. And, and Rome just kind of looked the other way. They were ripping off the Jewish people. They were ripping off their own people. And Rome was paying them to do that. To, hey, as long as you keep these people under hand, we don't care what you do. Go ahead. I mean, remember, what did we find in chapter 2? Chapter Jesus, what did he do? He had to go into the temple and what? Cleanse it. Why? Because it got out of hand. Because they were ripping off the people so bad. And so the Sanhedrin as a whole was hated by the common people. They didn't like them. It's kind of like the IRS. Really, it really is, you know. Uh, And and that's kind of what their role was. Now remember, Nicodemus was a member of this group of individuals. And last week we talked about how the Pharisees, how they loved what? Money, right? They love money, Jesus said. You have issues because you love money. And so this is the group that Nicodemus is part of. And he comes to Christ for information. And so this is his political position. He was, he was a leader. He was a ruler amongst them. Well, thirdly, I just want to point out his, his problem. Because he had a little issue here in verse 2. It says, this man came to Jesus by, what's it say? By night. Now, I've read some very respectable teachers on this, and one I really respect says, what does that mean? And he kind of jokingly in his message says, well, that means he didn't come to him during the day. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. I, I think it does. I would disagree with that statement. Uh, if it didn't mean anything, why would Jesus put it or why would God put it in there? If it didn't matter when Nicodemus came to Jesus, whether at night or day, why does it say he came to him by night? As a matter of fact, when you stop and you study out Nicodemus in the scriptures, every time he came to Jesus, guess what? He came to Jesus by night. Why? Now, we learned a lot about this man so far. Not only his religious persuasion, his political position, but he had this issue. He had this personal problem. He came to Jesus by Night. Um, it could have said he came during the day. Didn't say that. It said he came at night. One teacher said, well, maybe his wife had him cleaning the back porch, and that's why he did it. He didn't have time during the day. I don't agree with that. Maybe that's the only time he could get a reservation with Jesus. I don't believe that. I'll tell you why, because every time it talks about Nicodemus, he comes there at night. So what's the point? Why would he even put that in Scripture? Why not just say he came to Jesus? Who cares what time of the day is? As a matter of fact, you know what, I, I would tell you right now, it doesn't matter whether you come to Jesus by, during the day or at night. Right? If you can come to Jesus, you come to Jesus. Because that's what's needed. I think it's a very important point. Look, look over in John chapter 19. Couple pages there to your right, John 19, and look at verses 38, because this just gives us a little more background. And remember, we're just laying the groundwork here for the spiritual truths that we're going to begin to understand next week about being born again. What does this mean? In verses 38 and 39 of John 19, it says there after these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple was a disciple of Jesus after, after these things, after he was crucified and death, died. Um, it says there, after these things, he came secretly to Jesus, but secretly he was a disciple of Jesus for what? For the fear of the Jews. See that? In other words, this was something, if you were any part of the religion of the day, you would not be a follower of Christ. Because the religious leaders of the day hated Christ. He was stealing their thunder. He was you know, cleaning out their temple. He was squashing some of the, the monies that were coming into them. They didn't want that. And he, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Look at verse 39. Here we see Nicodemus again. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, notice he references what time he came earlier, too, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So Nicodemus did not want anybody to know that he came to Jesus at all. Now, Nicodemus knows about all the claims. About Jesus. He knows about his miracles, clearly. He knows that these signs were to be done. He was well taught. He knows they were to be done by the, the coming Messiah. Uh, Dave shares some wonderful prophecies about the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament uh, yesterday in our men's Bible study. And if you haven't uh, had a chance to listen to that, it, definitely go online and listen, even ladies, go on there and listen to it because it's a, it's a wonderful uh, historical. Um, kind of a factually-based message about why he came to Christ, why he believes the Bible. Um, and, and Dave did a wonderful job with that. But we saw some of the prophecies that were made. And even though he believes all this stuff, Nicodemus does not believe he's the Messiah. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, Nicodemus is part of the discussion later in John, in, in John 7, if you turn back there, where they're discussing whether Jesus could be the Messiah on the basis of the fact that he came from Galilee. They thought, well, wait, if there's going to be a Messiah, he's going to come from Jerusalem. He's not going to come from some podunk town named Galilee. Well, in John chapter 7, look at verses 47 to 52. We can just read this. I'll read it for you. You can follow along. John 7, verse 47 to 52. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. See how they put themselves over everybody else? Look at all those people. Don't know what they're talking about. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before. Remember, it was secretly, so they didn't know he had gone. And who was one of them, he's part of this religious organization, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So that's a good thing. I mean, Nicodemus is saying, hey, wait a minute, are we being fair? Shouldn't we maybe investigate this a little more? And look at the reaction in verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? What are you, one of his supporters, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. If we want a prophet, if we want a king, he's going to be coming out of Jerusalem. Now, Nicodemus, the reason I bring this out, was part of this discussion. Even though he tried to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't listen to him first uh, before we condemn him. And they said, hey, what more do we need? He comes from Galilee. Uh, That should settle it for you. Are you also from Galilee, Nicodemus? (laughs) Kind of put him on the spot. Now remember, this is the teacher of the Jews, the leader. You notice that Nicodemus kept quiet. The Bible does not record any answer from Nicodemus. The pressure was too great. The fear was too great. He was probably had major anxiety in his heart just raising this issue. So Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He didn't want anybody to know that he came to Christ. He was afraid, and rightfully so. I mean, he would be put out of what he knew to be his religion in, in, in no time flat if he became a follower of Christ at this point he was afraid to be seen with Jesus. Another place where you see people have this fear of the of the religious elite is in John chapter 9 verse 22. John chapter 9 just jump over there real quick. John chapter 9 verse 22. And remember, the reason I'm sharing all this information with you is because Nicodemus who was a Pharisee he, he comes to Jesus by night. Well, What significance does this have? Um, look at verse 22. Now, this is the, the incident here where Jesus is healing people, blind or getting their sight, and all this happens. And in verse 22, his parents, this person who was healed, uh, we know th- that this is our son, it says, and that he was born blind, but now he's sees but how he now sees we do not know. Jesus healed this son and the Pharisees were saying, "Well, wait a minute, how did this happen? What you know, what's going on here? Uh, maybe he wasn't blind at all and his parents are testifying saying, "No, he was blind from birth." We don't know how this happened, nor do we know who opened his eyes. All we know is our son was blind and now he sees. And they say, basically, ask him. He is of age. So they're being interrogated over a miracle that happened to their son. You can see the insecurity of the religious leaders. You think that if you're a religious person, you would be rejoicing with the parents, right? That the son received his sight and that he's whole. But no, instead they're attacking, well, who healed him? He'll speak for himself. And in verse 22, it says, his parents said these things because they what? They feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone, listen, should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So you wonder why Nicodemus had a little anxiety in his heart. You wonder why Nicodemus went to Jesus by night. I mean, it was very clear. They had, as a religious group, a grip on these people. And so his parents just said, look, we're not going to answer for him. You're going to have to 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 ask him. So in Nicodemus' life, back to John 3, there was something, you could say something missing in his heart. Something in his heart that he was wanting to listen to what Jesus said. And he saw the miracles, no doubt. That, that Christ performed. Now, remember, miracles at this point were not commonplace. Remember, there was, how, how long? 400 years. They hadn't heard anything from God at all for 400 years. John the Baptist was the first they heard of God in, in 400 years, God's message. And so now they're seeing these miracles daily, and it's overwhelming. It's, it's blowing them out of the water. They're just going, wow, this is incredible. A lot of times we think, oh, miracles back then were commonplace. No, they weren't. That's why they were called miracles. And so he had seen all this stuff, and he wants to inquire more. So he he figures out, you know what, I'm going to go to Christ. I'm going to go ask this guy, this teacher that I saw do these miracles, but I'm going to go at night because I do not want to violate my own religious principles. I don't want my religious buddies to turn on me. So I'm going to do it at night. And I would encourage you, if you're here today and you're seeking Christ, maybe you're new to Christ, maybe you're new to Christianity, I don't know, maybe you're new to coming to church. Uh, I would encourage you, if, if you think there's even a little bit here to investigate, spend some time investigating Christ. Take some time to read God's word. Before you start criticizing it. I would encourage you to inquire just a little bit more. You start taking steps toward our Lord rather than running away from him. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find his loving response to you. And he will give you more and more understanding of who he is. And the knowledge of what he wants from you in your life. Come toward him. Don't run away from him. So many times, people who are not believers, they run from God, thinking somehow they're going to hide from God. You're not going to hide from God. He he desires you to come to him. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's something that God can only do for us. And so Nicodemus at least took a step in the right direction, even as a religious, elite, money-hungry Pharisee. He said, you know what, I've seen kind of too much here. Uh, I can't just throw out this information that I've seen. I've seen Christ heal people. I've seen Christ do all these miracles. I've seen lives changed as, at the hand of Christ. But I'm going to have to come to him at night. Others didn't. Others sought out Jesus during the day. But not Nicodemus. He came at night. So look at the answer that Christ gives Nicodemus. He came to him in verse 2 and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God. So he's acknowledging who Christ is Now, remember, he is a rabbi himself. He is a Pharisee. He is a teacher amongst the people. That's not a term you just throw around. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when Catholic people call their priest father. You know, they don't call everybody father. <laughs> Maybe their natural father they call father. And they f- have their, what they believe their spiritual father in the Catholic churches. And you, and you address them as father. By the way, the Bible says call no man earthly man father. <laughs> You only have one father in heaven. But that's a whole other study. So what do you, what do you see here of this, this approach of Nicodemus and the answer of Christ? He, he basically says, you know what, we know that who you are. We, we know that you're a teacher. It comes from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is, this is objective evidence That Christ was who he said he was. And it's not from one of his followers. Think about this. This did not come from one of his disciples or one of his apostles or followers. Somebody who's been healed by Jesus or whatever. Oh yeah, he's probably going to say that about him. No, this came from his enemy. This is who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was part of the religious establishment that put Christ basically on the cross. They viewed Christ as a threat. And yet Nicodemus here, as a religious man, is going, well, we know you're a teacher, and you must come from God, because look at what you've done. Look at the signs that you have done. And no one can do these things. That's why they're called miracles. You know, it's kind of like when you go out to dinner and you're driving around the block for... Eight times, and finally you find a parking spot. Wow, it's a miracle. God, no, It's not a miracle. That's not a miracle. You know. I mean, a miracle of biblical proportions is when someone is blind from birth, and guess what? Jesus says, oh, you can see now, and, and their eyes are opened. Or someone who's been lame most of their life, and Jesus says, get up and walk, and guess what? They get up and walk. And they're whole, completely healed. They don't have a little ache three weeks later, going, oh, my, the healing must be wearing off. (laughs) Better go back to that tent where that guy is and have him heal me again. No. Jesus always healed people completely, thoroughly. And it was very obvious to everybody. It wasn't like the guys out on the street that have you sit in the chair and say, oh, oh, yeah, you're one leg shorter than the other. Here, let me, oh, wow, give in Jesus' name, grow. And, oh, look at the legs growing. It's all manipulation. I mean, to follow those kind of people, you're just deceived. I can think of other words, but I'm not going to go there. And so he, he wants him to understand, look, I know who you are. You, you had to come from God. For no one can do these things unless God is with him. Is that enough to save somebody? No. That's not enough to save somebody. That's not enough to save somebody. You can't be saved by trying to understand God. It always cracks me up when people, you share the Lord with people and they say, well, I just need to understand more. It's like, well, how much do you need to understand? I mean, how, much, how many questions do you have to have answered? And it just shows you what are they trying to do. They're trying to save themselves. They're saying, if I just get a little more, if I just read the Bible a little more, if I just go to church a little more, then maybe... No. How are you saved? You're not saved by coming to church. You're not saved by reading your Bible. You're not saved by even praying. You're saved by the sovereign hand of work that reaches down into your soul. And guess what? He saves you. Because you're at the end of yourself. Because you have nowhere else to go. You've given up on your religion. You've tried and tried year after year to make things right with your God. And it hasn't worked. You've sacrificed. You've given your resources away. You've spent time serving and serving. And you're thinking somehow the the scale, the balance is going to, your sin's over here. But eventually it'll just outweigh. No, that will never ever happen in a billion years. The only way. Anyone is ever saved, is ever born again, is by the grace of God. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. And I would say that it really takes you to stop trying to earn it before you can be saved. See, Jesus wants it to be so clear in your mind that he saved you. You didn't have a part in it. You weren't some good person who is seeking God, a seeker they call him, and eventually you figure the whole thing out. That's not how you get saved. It's the transformative work of God through the Holy Spirit, through his word, through his son. Do you have to trust in Christ to be saved? Definitely. That's the only thing that will save you. But even that is a gift of God. To come to that point. And so he makes this statement. I don't know if the end of your verse 2. What do you see there? You see a quotation. What's inside the quotation? I see a period. You see a period? Do you see a question mark? Was Nicodemus asking a question? He wasn't asking a question. He was making a statement. He was like, look, we look at everything, Jesus. We look at all the miracles you do. You know what? We know you're a teacher that's come from God because it's impossible for someone to do these things unless God is with him. And look at what Jesus does in the very, very next verse. He gives him an answer. That's what it says. At least in my, my translation, it says Jesus answered him. Doesn't he say that? Why did he answer him? Because he didn't ask a question. What's he doing here? He's basically telling Nicodemus, blah, 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 blah. Stop talking, Nicodemus. What you have to say is unimportant to me at this point. I mean, given that situation, if someone came up to me and said, hey, pastor, you know, you know, we appreciate your teaching us, and, you know, boy, you, you know, you're a man of God, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I don't think, I would probably say, well, thank you very much. You know, I appreciate those kind words, but trust me, you really don't know me. But, you know, I would probably say something like that, right? Because nobody likes adulation like that. But, you know, I w- Jesus just discounts what he says. And he says, okay, I can answer this. He says, truly, truly, look at what he says. I say to you, and when we see this term truly, truly, we see it over and over and over and over again here in the text, in John. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the only way you can see the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? He's talking about the kingdom of God in reference to our salvation. There's different aspects of the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus is talking about the idea that you will not enter into my kingdom one day and be saved. Unless you are born again. That's a pretty deep answer to a question that really wasn't asked. (laughs) Nicodemus didn't ask that. But Jesus is saying, truly, truly, it's like saying, hey, you know what, pal, listen up, because this is really, really important. What I'm about to say to you is very, very important. And Jesus says this over and over and over again throughout uh, throughout throughout John. He says, truly, truly, over and over and over again. And it's, it's, what's, what's amazing to me, okay, is that when you stop and you, you think about Jesus addressing this question that Nicodemus did not ask, okay, he didn't ask anything here, but Jesus answered him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot be saved is what he means very clearly. You mean, I'm a Pharisee and you're telling me I have no means to go into God's kingdom? Exactly. Why did Jesus answer him this way? I think it goes all the way back to chapter 2, verse 23. When it says that he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, at the Passover feast, Remember, we talked about this. Many believed in his name. Why did they believe in his name? Because they saw the same thing Nicodemus saw. They saw the signs that he was doing. But then look at the next verse. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? It tells us. Because he knew all people. He knew all people. He knew what was in their hearts. So what's Jesus doing? He's saying, Look, Nicodemus, I understand that you think I'm a teacher from God and you see the miracles that I do and all this stuff, but you know what? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't congratulate Nicodemus. Well, you've done a pretty good job so far, just keep at it. No. He doesn't do he just ignores everything that Nicodemus just said. Which in our society would be considered rude. But see, Jesus understands there's a greater thing at stake here. Because Jesus understood what was in Nicodemus' heart. Nicodemus' heart was filled with religion. And just because you acknowledge me as a teacher who comes from God, and just because you acknowledge all the signs that I do, you're not going to get saved by that. Why? Because, you know what, Nicodemus, you need to come to understand what he's going to tell us next week. You you, you need to understand that the only way you ever see the kingdom of God, and by the way, that speaks to what? The reality of the kingdom of God itself, right? The messianic kingdom. He says you cannot see the kingdom of God, so evidently you're going to be able to see it. If you're a believer, guess what? You're part of the kingdom. Guess what? People should be able to see it. There's no undercover believers. There's no undercover Christ followers. People should be able to see the change that Jesus has wrought in your life. It should be evident to all. But he says you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Some translations say born from above. And then in the original there in verse 31, you know what? If you go down to verse 31, look at what he says in, in chapter 3, verse 31. He says, he who comes from above, see that word, is above all. That word above is the same word in the original language here as it is in verse uh, t- uh, 2 here. Or verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, And remember, being born is not something you do, it's something that's what? Done to you, right? You you can't cause yourself to be born. The same applies, you cannot cause yourself to be born again. And unfortunately, the church today has made it something that you do, not really what, what God does to you. And so every church has a little list of things Well, you go to church, you get baptized, and then, you know, you take communion, you do all these things, and then, you know, you'll, you'll be saved. No, no. I go back to the thief on the cross. What did he do? Bad things. I mean, he was on a cross. He must have done something bad. He was a criminal of some sort, and he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus And before he breathes his last breath, what does he say? Hey, remember me today when you go to paradise, Lord. What did he do? He came to the end of himself. He realized that there's nothing he could do in that situation. He couldn't do anything religious. He was hanging naked in front of everyone on a cross, dying. That's that's the point that we have to come to before we will ever, ever be saved. We fail to understand this. Jesus is pretty clear. He says, unless you die to yourself daily, you can't be my disciple. Take up your cross daily. See, we've made this new birth into something. We celebrate, we come, you know, go to church and, you know, learn the lingo. And, oh, yeah, I guess I'm saved now. Can I get baptized? Now. This is not something that you do. This is something that God does to you. And when he does it, guess what? You know it. You know it without a doubt. And you don't start patting yourself on the back. Hey, look at me. I came to Christ. No, you fall to your knees and you say, man, why? Why did you save me? And God simply says, because I wanted to. Don't ever think there's something good in you that God needs. He doesn't need you on his side. He's already won. Okay, we we think somehow we're joining teams here. That's not how this is working. God has set his love on you before you were ever you. Before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon you. And he wants you to know that the only hope you have in life, the only hope to ever Enter his kingdom. The only hope to ever be born again, to be saved, is to throw yourself at his feet. And trust in the work that Christ has already done for you. Salvation is not something we do. We have to get this out of our heads. This is not biblical teaching but what do we do when we go out and evangelize? The first thing we do is we call somebody, well, do you want to become a Christian? Sure. Oh, okay. Well, here, here. Well, this says, pray this prayer. Let's pray this prayer together. I'll pray it for you. Just, you know, just in the quietness of your heart, agree with me. And then, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the family, brother or sister. Boy, God, that grieves the heart of God. And so what happens? You have people walking around thinking they're a Christian because they prayed some prayer or they raised some hand in a service somewhere. And they're struggling in their spiritual life. Things just don't seem right. Because maybe they don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe they're not saved. Maybe they're just religious. See, this causes us to look deep into our own heart. We don't look at our neighbors. We, we should be looking at our own self. God, have you saved me? A couple months, we'll have Justin Peters here, who's a wonderful teacher of the Word of God. That he, part of his testimony is he didn't get saved till after seminary, I think. And he was teaching effectively the Bible. It's pretty amazing. It's very easy. We've made it very easy for people to, quote, come to Christ without coming to the end of themselves. But Jesus says that's exactly what's needed. You have to be looking at me and me alone for your salvation. If you're looking at me and the church or me and this or me and that, that's not salvation. In Christ we sing, in Christ what? Alone. That's where salvation is. And I would encourage you today, as Jesus encouraged Nicodemus, you know what? It's not good enough just to know these things about Jesus. Has he made an impact on your life? Has he changed you? Has people, have you seen the change? Have other people seen the change? Because that's really the only thing that matters. Why would you want to put your eternal soul in peril of dying one day in being separated and going to hell for all of eternity. When you know the only hope, it's not like you have multiple choice here. God has made it very simple. There's only one way, Jesus said, I'm the way the truth and the life. No man comes to the father but through me. He didn't say, "Oh, we well, can try this or you can tr-. No. You know, he, he made it so simple. And yet we make it so difficult, don't we? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we know that religion cannot save us. Religion is man-made. What we're talking about is a supernatural transformation, a, a new birth, being born from above, the word says. And Father, we ask that even now, if there's any here who have yet to see this change, this transformation in their own life. Maybe they've been part of this church for years, but now they're sitting there going, well, am I a believer or not? That's good. It's good to question that. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. Are we just playing church? Or is our salvation real? And if it's real, do we see evidence of it being real? Is God changing us? Are we loving him and hating sin more and more in our in our lives daily? Do we have an unyielding thirst and desire for the Word of God like a newborn baby would crave its mother's milk? Or do we just open up the Bible whenever we're in church? Or... Because if, if these things are not true, do we have a desire to pray? Do we have a desire to fellowship with God's people? These are all evidences of new life. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in the hearts of people who don't have those evidences. That you would give them the assurance of their own salvation. And if they're not saved, I pray that you would open their eyes. That you would allow them to come to the end of themselves, realizing that they, the only thing they can do is throw themselves at the feet of Christ. Like the man in the New Testament It wasn't like the Pharisee praying to himself, all dressed up so everybody could see. Thank God I'm not like all these sinners. No. The man in the New Testament cried out to God and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew the magnitude of his sin before a holy God. That's what you have to understand before you could ever come to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray you do that work. Help us to give the message daily through our lives, through our lips. Lord, we thank you for our time here this morning. We pray for our fellowship time afterwards and the food. Pray you'd bless it to our bodies. Uh, Give us a good week, and we look forward to gathering again together on uh, Wednesday night. Pray for Kainoa this week as he prepares uh, his study for Wednesday night as he teaches. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.